Hello and welcome to episode 222 of the IABC International Podcast. My name's Dan Gold and on this episode we're meeting one of the newly recognised IABC fellows, Diane Gayeski. We talk about her journey going from the world of media to professional communication and so much more. Things that I treasure about my broadcast preparation is that we learned to work in a team and we learned to work with uh, not very much notice, to be able to be very organized, to be able to respond quickly to changing circumstances and to keep a cool head. But first, with many IABC members and professionals in our wider community whose financial situation has changed due to COVID-19, we're offering relief to those who've lost their job, been furloughed or lost income and are due for renewal between now and the 31st of May 2020, or who wish to join the organisation as a new member. Visit IABC.com for more information and there's a link in the notes of this episode. One of my personal highlights from last year's Gold Quill Awards Gala was the recognition of the new IABC Fellows. Sharing that moment with them was very special. And this year, yes, it's going to be different, but we are still celebrating with them. And today on the IABC International Podcast, I have one of the new IABC Fellows, Diane Gayeski. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so honoured to have been selected for this uh, wonderful inclusion into the Fellows. What inspired you to take a step in the direction of being a professional communicator? I think my ambitions to be a part of the communications community started as early as when I was eight years old. Um, the top 40 radio station in my community had their offices in the same building as my father's offices. And I was quite fascinated by the disc jockeys who were like rock stars to me. And I would accompany my dad on Saturday mornings to his office where he would check his mail and I would press my nose up against the glass of the studio and hope that the DJs might notice me. Um, after some months of this, they finally took pity and did invite me in. And uh, I was asked to help them with uh, some simple tasks like um, getting some of their record albums or doing the rip and read of the news off the old teletype machine. And I was hooked. Um, I decided to study broadcasting in college, which I did. And um, in my senior year, my interest in public broadcasting then migrated to an interest in educational and corporate communications, uh, which then I pursued in graduate school. Um, I didn't even know that there was a profession like corporate communications, employee communications, and corporate media. In fact, I'm of the age when all of that was still pretty new. Uh, and I feel like in some ways I've been a part of the birth of many of the practices and technologies that now define 
our profession, but I certainly could not have imagined when I was fawning over the DJs as an eight-year-old that I would wind up as a fellow of IABC. It's been a journey, no doubt, and I can completely understand that bug that you felt when you spent that time pressing up against the window of the radio station looking in. The The power of radio for me is its direct relationship with the individual. It's a one-on-one medium and it can really speak to people. I remember when I was on the radio in my previous career, I always recall my program directors highlighting the importance of the relationship with the listener because you're directly speaking to them not to a group of people like television being a a uh, shared experience where everyone would gather around radio could be that thing that you connect to someone where they're listening in their bedroom or whilst they're driving or or whilst they're revising so i've got very big uh, soft spot for the world of radio and i love that that is your journey you went in the other direction with professional communication from a non-broadcast point of view. Was there anything that you missed from the broadcast side or were there skills from the broadcast side that you were able to apply to the business communicator side? That's a very interesting question and I think very relevant now. One of the things that I treasure about my broadcast preparation is that we learned to work in a team and we learned to work with uh, not very much notice, to be able to be very organized, to be able to respond quickly to changing circumstances, and to keep a cool head. And, um, you know, very often I think individuals think about business communications as being one that doesn't face those kinds of deadlines and pressures that our colleagues in, in let's say, broadcast journalism face. Um, these days, I think things are quite different. I see what's happening at my own university as we are coping with the changing conditions of COVID-19 and having to, on a more than daily basis, communicate things to our campus partners, our students, faculty, staff, alumni, uh, community partners, and vendors. And we are indeed um, having to work in teams on very short deadlines and keep clear heads. And um, so I, I thought that I was getting out of a field that had some of those kinds of uh, deadline pressures, and I find that I'm glad that I did have those kinds of experiences and training. The bit that you mention on collaboration and working with other people, I find in different sectors, people tend to work very independently on writing, but the collaborative process within a newsroom is very much uh, a group of people in a relatively small space working to a time pressure. And it highlights the importance of interpersonal skills while still telling that story. That's absolutely true. And I think the other wonderful skill of having been in trained in commercial broadcasting is that we 
understood that we had to work for an audience. Uh, they were not simply delivered to us, and we always needed to stay relevant, and we knew that there were many other distractions and, uh, and options for our audience, and that is certainly the case in uh, professional business communications these days. On that, could I ask you a question? I, with with my broadcast, have always felt you have to put the audience first and then look at the material that you want to deliver to them, how you want to deliver a meaningful engagement. Where historically, as business communicators, maybe we were thinking, okay, these are the objectives of the organization that we need to communicate. And times have, as you said, changed. Do you think there was a a moment where there was a mindset change, where we suddenly had tools where we could listen and get real feedback? Maybe that was the digital revolution, or maybe it was something else. At what point did the rest of the communication world go, okay, audience, that's where we've got to focus as the primary thing and then communicate to them and engage with them? I I do think that uh, there was a big shift when the audience could give us direct feedback, and in fact, they could produce their own materials that were either in support or counter to uh, what the corporate message might be. Um, The first were some of the rogue websites that uh, disaffected employees would start uh, that would be mocking or criticizing their own employers. And of course, in today's social media, there's no end of public criticism of uh, corporations. And one doesn't know whether that's coming from employees or customers or neither. Uh, but, but I do think that while we might be more attuned to the sentiment of our audience or being able to control that, I'm not sure that we still are as highly developed in our ability to understand performance as the center for our communication decisions. Um, And I say that because my own practice is informed by uh, being a communicator, but also being trained and practicing in corporate training and instructional design. And um, my own approach is... I don't call myself a communicator. I I call myself a performance consultant. And um, my bag of tricks, various kinds of communications, techniques and technologies and strategies are are part of that. But my training is to analyze performance of a business and performance of individuals and to understand what the goals are, to understand what the gaps are, and to understand why, in some cases, uh, employees are not performing up to what the expectations of their managers might be. And it's a lot more than just trying to be clever in terms of our communications techniques, either clever writing or clever graphics or using a new technology um, that might, in fact, attract or distract them, but it might not change their performance. Because in many cases, the gap is not due to a lack of information or communication or not even a lack of them being convinced of a 
of a particular message. Um, there are so many reasons why uh, people don't behave in the ways that we would like them to. That's for employees. That's for customers as well. Um, and so I think as professional communicators, we need to be very attuned to understand what the life and motivations and environment is of um, those people who are our communications partners, might call them audiences, uh, but I think today they're more a partner than an audience, and to understand um, what the purpose of communications is. And it's not necessarily just to please them or to get more likes on a page or to have people spend more time on one's messages. In fact, um, there are times that I would tell clients, uh, it just seems to be an, a, an attractive nuisance. Yes, it is. Uh, it's taking up a lot of their time. But in fact, is that a good thing that they're spending their time watching your social media or watching the videos? And what is it having the uh, change in performance that you desire? So I, I think um, that's an area that that needs more help. And I, as an educator in communications, it's a skill set that sort of performance analysis is not one that I find is commonly taught in curriculum or textbooks. It really comes down to understanding them and having a perception of the needs within other human beings. And those human beings, and correct me if I'm wrong, those other human beings could be people who work with you, people who work for you, stakeholders, owners, regulators, clients, potential clients, and so on. Would I be correct in that assumption? I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and, you know, in today's world, it's not so easy just to classify audiences into one category. You know, one's employees are often one's customers as well. And they might also be voters uh, that influence legislation that's going to impact your business. They might also be stockholders. They might also be um, parents or spouses of people who are in any of those kinds of categories. So I think we have to be extremely sensitive uh, to the fact that people have multiple roles, multiple personalities, multiple relationships with an organization. And, um, and to be thinking of uh, not only what are their needs, uh, but, but once we satisfy their need, what is it that we hope to achieve? Is it loyalty? Or are we trying to reduce turnover? Are we trying to allay fears so that people spend less time gossiping or uh, worrying and they get on with their work? Um, is it that they will share good word of mouth and encourage other people to uh, be customers of your, your company or donors um, to your not-for-profit. I, I think we have to have a very clear end in mind other than they liked what it is that we um, told them and, and the way that we provided it to them. Is there a question that too many people get hung up on vanity metrics? In the radio world, it would be as simple as looking at how many calls you get per hour or how much interaction you get on a website, but not getting an uplift when it comes to the number of listeners you have per se. 
or organizations being over the moon with 20,000, 30,000 likes on a post and a whole pile of shares. But operationally, it's made no difference to the bottom line. I think that's exactly the point. Um, and, you know, we're, we look at lots of different metrics. If, um, if you're a broadcaster, you're usually trying to sell advertising and advertisers normally want to know how big the audience is, specifically in their target demographic. Um, in business communications, it's something entirely different. Um, certainly, we want lots of people to, be, to pay attention, but in some cases, they're a captive audience, so they, they don't have the choice. Um, but even if they are paying attention, it doesn't necessarily mean that they like what they have seen or that it was in fact, a good use of their time. Um, one particular client project really stands out in my mind. I work for uh, one of the largest Canadian banks. And they at the time were um, sending out a lot of communications to employees, both from their marketing department about a new change in branding that they were um, promoting, and also their training department was sending out a lot of new information out about uh, new sales processes and new products. And they, the management was a little disappointed overall that uh, it didn't seem to be having the impact and change of employee behavior that they thought they would. So they, they hired me as a, as a researcher, academic consultant to to review their communications and training materials to see what was wrong. You know, should they not, should they be using video uh, rather than newsletters or should they be doing live meetings instead of uh, some other strategy? Right. And, and they were also looking at how is it written? You know, what, what's wrong? Why is it not working? And I looked at each individual piece and they were all fine. They all used very good strategies and then what I did was ask that the, the bank send me for one month all of the communications and training materials that a branch manager or assistant branch manager would get within that month. Send me all the newsletters, emails, uh, videos, uh, meeting invitations, whatever. And when I added it up in terms of how much time it would take to consume that information. It was more than 40 hours every week. So in fact, if managers did attend every meeting, read the newsletters, watched the videos, they would literally not have time to do their jobs. And so you look at um, communications in a, in a more holistic way, and one has to look at whether the materials are effective because because of their own standalone value, but also in the context of the plethora of other things that we are asking those individuals to do and consume. You mentioned earlier on that a part of your work is instructional design. Do you feel that where people have the best intentions in putting programming together without understanding 
instructional design. It maybe doesn't always achieve the intended goals, doesn't have the outcomes. I do think that one of the the wonderful skills that I learned in instructional design is to start with the objective in mind and to be able to write that objective in operational terms. Um, So in, you know, when we teach instructional design, there's a very rigid format that students need to follow. And it's always the learner will, and then some active word, not the learner will learn or appreciate or, um, you know, or like, because one can't see that. It's not observable. So we always have to go back and say, well, how would you know if someone appreciates this or has learned it? What is, what is a behavior that we can all see and measure and agree upon that we could get a panel of five people and they would all agree that this person has met the objective? And boy, it's really difficult to do, right? Because a lot of us will say, well, we, we want to all appreciate the need to recycle our office material so that we're a more sustainable company. Great. I, I appreciate that. Has it changed my behavior? Do I appreciate it enough? Right? So the only way we know is whether we can have measurable outcomes. And um, as I say, somebody who teaches and, and uh, practices instructional design and communications I find that that's a very common thing. It's absolutely lesson probably number one if one is learning instructional design is how to write a behavioral objective. And I don't find it in communications. There certainly are. There's much more today in emphasis on goals and metrics. But again, a lot of those metrics are um, like a broadcaster, like how many people opened it and how long did they stay on a web page? It's not on you know, what, what is the performance outcome that is meaningful in terms of making the needle change in the business. And I see from this that there are those opportunities to look towards our IABC fellows for that guidance and mentorship and those demonstrations of best practice. And I am sure in time that you will be appearing with Shell Holtz on the Circle of Fellows podcast, and we will be able to lean in and garner some of those insights. I'd like to just ask you about, I don't often like to say it in this way, your IABC career, because it always makes it sound so final, it's the end. This is your journey, here's the golden clock. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm asking you is... Why did you initially see that it was important enough to you to join on that first day that you said, I need to join IABC? Why did you join and why did you stay? No, I'm, I'm old enough that I can't quite even remember the day or the reason that I joined. But, but I do know that um, as a faculty member, in, uh, in a department that was then called corporate media, I recognized that there were really no textbooks and there were very few other places that were teaching this uh, in higher ed and that um, most of the learning was coming through professional sharing. And somehow I came upon IABC and uh, I, I found a professional home. I found that 
this was a way that I could learn and I could also share new perspectives. I found that for my students that um, this was a terrific association to encourage them to join and to learn about. I, I actually am still the advisor for our campus IABC uh, student chapter. I remember back in the very early 80s uh, being connected on CompuServe, which was sort of even before email and the internet as we know it. Uh, I'm, I'm located in Ithaca, New York, which, as we say, is centrally isolated. So we're about four and a half hours from New York City, about the same from Toronto, and there are no chapters within shooting distance of here. So my ability to reach out other than the international conference once a year was really this new thing called the internet. And I remember one of my first friends on CompuServe in the IABC forum was Shell Holtz, the other Sherry Rosen. And it was, it was really remarkable um, just last week to have a Zoom meeting with the fellows and to be able to communicate with both of them and see their faces and remember back in the day when we would sign on with a, you know, a landline modem for a little while and, and we were amazed to be able to exchange a couple of sentences of text back and forth. And um, we didn't even have email addresses. We had you know, some long list of numbers that, was, uh, that were our accounts. So I have this long relationship. And, and again, for me, as both being an academic and being in an area where there are not other professional communicators within sight, uh, IABC has been my lifeline to the profession. I understand that your contributions to IABC are prolific. You've held multiple IABC roles at local, regional, and international levels. Why was the volunteerism important to you? I'm an educator at heart, and so I love learning and I love sharing. And um, IABC has been a, a wonderful place to do that. Um, I have I've found so many opportunities to be able to develop my own skills um, to try out my ideas on people. You know, as, um, as a researcher, what's common for people to do is to, uh, in, in conferences and other kinds of academic settings, throw some half-baked idea out to others and have them give constructive feedback on that. And that's the way we develop new theories, new models, new research. And um, I was in a position of trying to explain things and develop concepts so that I could share them in a systematic way with students. And then as I was practicing as a consultant, I would find myself in unknown territory and try to develop new models or maps to try to see what I was doing or to try to capture the kinds of processes that, that, was, that were just happening. And um, IABC has been a really great venue for me to try that out. Um, I've, I've presented at many of the regional and international conferences. Um, I've led a couple of the think tanks. Um, one of my uh, handbooks 
has been published by IABC. And in all of those venues, I found a great opportunity to have feedback on my developing understanding and concepts. From your journey as an IABCer, what would you say to the next generation of people considering being a part of IABC? You've given a great reason why they should be a part of it. Could you speak a little bit about the community side? So often in our field, we are solo practitioners in our organizations. It's only in the biggest companies where there's a large staff of professional communicators. So I, I have found that many of my friends and clients and colleagues are perhaps the only professional communicator in their organization, uh, or one of very few. And that makes it difficult to grow in your profession. It's hard to find a mentor. It's hard to find a career path. Um, and I think um, the only way to do that well is to be able to communicate outside one's organization with other professionals. Um, we're, we're in, a, in a, a distinctive spot because if we look at um, most other professions within organizations, people have lots of colleagues and it's easy to see a career path from being an entry-level employee to someone who rises through the ranks. Uh, and not so much for people in our field. And so I think that IABC um, is that community, is that professional community for so many of us. On behalf of my part of IABC, a very big thank you for joining me here on the podcast and I'd like to give people the opportunity, if you're willing, to be able to find out more about you or get in touch with you. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. It's very easy to find me if one just Googles my name, um, either through my company's uh, website, it's called Bayeski Analytics, uh, or I'm all over the, the uh, Roy H. Park School of Communications at Ithaca College, uh, their website. So uh, I love connecting with people. So um, please email me. Diane, thank you so much for joining us here on the IABC International Podcast. I hope that you have a truly lovely rest of your day. And when you mentioned about where you are located in the world in the sense of isolation and, and feeling connected through IABC, I immediately looked up your location because there was something that reminded me about when I uh, did a road trip many, many years ago, around about 1992. And funnily enough, we came through, my family from the United Kingdom, we came through Ithaca, through past uh, the Finger Lakes, and I remember it distinctly, and it was one of the happiest memories uh, of my life. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And I, at some point, will make a return and I will be bringing my family. So please be prepared for that. I hope so. I would be very happy to host you. Thank you.
if you haven't heard already, and I'd be surprised if you haven't, the 2020 IABC World Conference is going virtual. The event still takes place between the 14th and 17th of June, and you'll be able to experience it from anywhere in the world. Many of you are wondering what a virtual conference will look like, and over the coming weeks, IABC will be sharing examples and visuals to help you paint that picture. This conference will be far more than a webinar and anything you've experienced in a video conference call. The IABC World Conference is going to be using a virtual platform which will allow you to move around the conference hall, attend keynote and breakout sessions in an environment designed to make you feel like you're sitting among peers in a theatre. You can use your phone or tablet as a second screen for chats or Q&A sessions while watching speakers on your computer and you can connect with other attendees for networking and discussion, even visit the virtual exhibit hall, a help desk and a resource library. One of my favourite things is the opportunity to go back and watch recorded sessions which will be available immediately after the session, and they'll be posted for a year after the event. I have a link in the notes of this episode which will connect you directly to the IABC World Conference website. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please share this free resource with friends and colleagues. Music is from Joachim Karud, and this is an IABC production. Music